The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We want to come this morning again to the study of God's Word in Ephesians 5, and we want to come to part 3 of our study of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. We are slowly working our way through this passage because we really believe that this section of Ephesians 5 is integral to us understanding how to live the Christian life. We have said that being controlled by the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to the Christian life. You cannot live the life God has called you to live apart from a proper understanding of how the Holy Spirit enables you to live this life. It is really the key to rightly living the Christian life. We need to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, in in order to help us understand this marvelous reality, draws a contrast for us in verse 18. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We spent the last two Sundays on that verse alone, and we've done that because he's drawing a contrast here, and the issue is control. Who or what is controlling you. As an unbeliever, we used to be characterized by drunkenness, but now that we're believers, we don't go back to that lifestyle anymore. We don't, we don't engage in the party scene anymore. We're not drunkards. We don't live that way anymore. Once you become a Christian, you say goodbye to that life that you once lived, the control of those substances that you once put in your body, and now you say, no, I want to be controlled by God himself. Through the Spirit of God. And so this party life, this old nature, this old way that we used to live is not us anymore. We don't, we don't live that way. We're not controlled by the world or our flesh. We're controlled by God himself. He says, I want you to be controlled, filled by the Holy Spirit. We spent two Sundays uh, talking about what that looks like. And if you need a review of that, you can go back and listen to those messages. Let me just recap briefly for you what we've said. We've said that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some mystical thing. You you know, it's not something that you, you, you just kind of feel. It's not that you start speaking in tongues. It's not that you have this warm sensation all over you or you start to have this burning feeling that comes over your body. That that's not being filled with the Holy Spirit. That just means you're getting sick. And you need to go see a doctor or, or maybe it means you have heartburn or indigestion or perhaps you had bad Chinese the night before. And that, that's all that really means. And so it doesn't mean here that you're having some warm sensation or you're, you're feeling something. It's not some sensation that you have to indicate that, that you're being filled with the Spirit of God. No, it's an issue of control where you're allowing the, God, the Spirit of God to permeate your life. To control every aspect of your life, from your thoughts, to your emotions, to your attitudes, your desires, your motivations, your words, your actions. You want God to have a dominating influence in your life. That's what you want. This is what it means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And we've said the last couple Sundays that this is a command which implies that it's not automatic. We've talked about the fact that being indwelt by the Spirit of God and baptized by the Spirit of God and sealed by the Spirit of God, those are all automatics. They come to you automatically at the moment of conversion, at the moment of salvation. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And as a New Testament saint, you have the privilege and joy of having the Holy Spirit live inside of you. But the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit implies that it's not automatic. So you can have all of the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit cannot have all of you at times in your life. So that shows us that this is something that we need to do on a daily basis, moment by moment, day by day, year by year, week by week. We need to make sure that we're putting ourselves in the place where the Spirit of God is controlling us rather than our flesh. It's a continual command, meaning be being filled, continually be being filled by the Spirit of God. It involves day by day, moment by moment, submission to the Spirit's control, which implies that there's times in our day, in our life, where we're not walking in the Spirit, when we're fleshly. When we're allowing our fleshly sinful desires control us and we respond in anger and frustration and impatience and words come out of our mouth that hurt people, those are indications of the fact that we're not walking in the Spirit, but by the flesh. 
And so we've said we, we need to make sure that we're meeting the conditions for getting ourselves in a place where we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not something we just ask for. It's not something we plead with God for to make happen. No, we, we put ourselves in, in a place where that happens. How does that happen? We, we confess our sin. When we don't quench the Spirit, when we don't grieve the Spirit, we are those who, who are then meeting the conditions for allowing the Spirit of God to control us. So we confess sin. We deal with sin quickly. We keep short accounts of sin. We said a second condition was to be... To, to allow the Word of God to fill us in our minds. Where we hide the Word of God in our hearts, where we imbibe the Scriptures into our very being, where we think God's truth, where we love God's truth, where the Word of God continues to control our thinking and our, and our attitudes and our actions. And we said that the role of the Holy Spirit is not to reveal new truth to us, but to help us understand old truth. We're not looking for a word from the Lord we're not looking for some special divine revelation, some secret message to, to us from God just for us to hear. We're not looking for that. That's not, that's not what we're after. What we want to know is what, what does this book say and how does it apply to our life? And when we do that, we will be walking in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. Well, that's all review. What we want to do today is we want to deal with the issue, what does the Spirit-filled life look like? What are the consequences? What are the effects? What are the manifestations of a spirit-filled life? What does it look like? How do you know if you're going to be a person who's walking in the spirit and filled with the spirit of God? Well, fortunately, Paul answers that question for us, and he tells us in verses 19 to 21 what the effects or the consequences of a spirit-filled life are. Let me read, starting in verse 18, and we'll look at these. Verse 18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Those verses describe for us the effects of a spirit-filled life. And in reality, the effects continue on through the rest of the book. And we've talked about that already. Into the next section in chapter 5, we find out that the spirit-filled wife is going to submit to her husband. And the spirit-filled husband is going to love and cherish and treasure his wife. And in chapter 6, we learn that spirit-controlled children are obedient to their parents. And spirit-controlled parents are not going to provoke their children to anger. Spirit-filled employees are going to work hard for their employers, and spirit-filled bosses are not, not going to be harsh with their employees. And so, in reality, the effects of this spirit-filled life continue on throughout the rest of the book, and we're going to look at those in the next few weeks. But what we want to do this morning is concentrate our attention on verses 19 to 21, because Paul lists for us here some very specific implications or manifestations of the spirit-filled life. Now, what if I told you that I know of something that will give you happiness and joy? What if I told you I knew of something that would give you the contentment that you are looking for, your heart is looking for and longing for? What would you do if I told you I knew of something like that? Would you want it? What if I told you that I know of something that will secure your relationships and promote harmony and peace and, and, and unity in your relationships? Would you be interested in that? What if I told you I, I know of something that will make you the most grateful and thankful person who's ever lived? Would you want that? It's what the world wants. It's what the world is after. The world is desperate for something that will make them happy, something that will give them joy, something that will solve their relational problems. The world is desperate for this, and they're looking for it in all kinds of ways. They're buying things to try and solve that issue. They're, they're, they're going places to try and solve that issue. They're looking for something that will make them happy. They go to bars, they drink, they put stuff in their body, justifying something to make them happy and joyful and solve their relational problems and to make them content. I got something that will do that. Are you interested? It's right here in Ephesians 5, verses 19 to 21. 
Paul tells us all those things that you want are yours or your money back if you have the Spirit of God. And he tells us in these verses, you're going to have joy and you're going to have happiness and you're going to be thankful and you're going to submit to one another and enjoy relational harmony. You're going to have all those things that you are desperately wanting and what the world is pursuing and running after, they're yours. If you allow the Spirit of God to control you. In verses 19 to 21, there are five participles. Take you back to ninth grade English, right? So clear out the cobwebs, go back to ninth grade, Mrs. whoever you had in ninth grade English, and remember, what is a participle? Okay, A participle is a word, a verb, that usually ends in ing, and it is used to explain the action of the main verb. So you have a main verb followed by a verb ending in ing, that those verbs then explain further the main action of the main verb. Do you remember that? Some of you are looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Did you take English? Well, here in verse 18, Paul gives us a main verb. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the main verb. And then in verses 19 to 21, there are five participles that explain for us what this looks like. You can see them. You can see them better in a New American Standard than an NIV, but you can see them anyway. Speaking, verse 19, to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's one. Singing, there's two. Making melody with your heart to the Lord, there's three. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's four. And verse 21, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Five participles that explain and give us evidence of what the spirit-filled life is. We're going to combine those into three points this morning. And I want you to take a test. I'm going to give you a pop quiz And as we go through these, I want you to evaluate your life and say, is this true of me? Is this true of me? Is this true of me? Because if it is, you're a man or a woman who's walking in the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit. If these are not true of you, then you're not allowing the Spirit of God to control you. You're not allowing the Spirit of God and God God Himself to, to work in your heart. And you need to get yourself to a point where the Spirit of God is freed up to have His way in your life. So let's take the quiz. Three results of being filled with the Holy Spirit. First, number one, your heart is joyful. Your heart is joyful. When you are filled with the Spirit of God, you are going to be filled with joy. You're going to be happy. In fact, you're going to be so content and so grateful and so joyful that it's going to be spilling out of your life. It's just going to be leaking out of you. As you walk down the the road, it's just going to be coming out of you. It's going to be leaking out of you. Listen in the form of music. You're going to be singing. The spirit-filled life produces music. The spirit-filled life produces songs coming out of your heart. And nothing is more indicative of a contented, happy heart than the expression of joy and music just coming out of you. And this is the first indication that Paul gives us of the spirit-filled life. I love this because he doesn't say, you're not looking for some ecstatic experience. You're not looking for some emotional event. You're not looking for the warm sensation that starts in your head and goes down to your feet. The very first evidence of the Spirit-filled life is you'll sing. That's it. Very simple. This is not complicated. This is not hard. And oftentimes we make this more difficult than it really is because we're looking for this and this word and we're trying to get a word from the Lord and we're trying to get some special message and we're trying to discern all these signs. Am I spirit-filled? And Paul says, listen, it's not that complicated. You want to know if you're spirit-filled? You'll be singing. There's going to be music coming out of your heart. That makes sense. Because Jesus said, out of the heart the mouth speaks. And so if if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you and He's living in you and He's resident within you, then it's going to come out in how how you speak and what you say and and the songs that come out of your mouth. We could say that the Spirit-filled Christian is a singing Christian. You're going to be so joyful. You're going to be so content. You're going to be so happy that you're going to be singing. Now, some of you at this point are saying, wait a minute, Todd, I can't sing. I understand that. I I can relate to that a little bit. I'm not the best singer. Uh, When I was in seminary, 
I remember a time when uh, at, at graduation, all the student body would would sing at the graduation. So you had a student body of 400 men singing, and it was really wonderful. But the guy in charge of it, Clayton Herb, he would tell us, now some of you guys are your audio and video, and some of you are video only. And what he meant by that is some, some of you can sing, and so, you know, give us the full audio, give us the full video. Some, some of you can't, so just give us the video. Just, just make it look like you're singing. I, I can kind of relate to that. I'm kind of a video-only kind of guy. And I feel like at this point, I need to apologize to everyone seated down in the overflow room because this little microphone picks up only me. And so you're getting to hear all the worst singing going on in this building down there in the overflow, so I'm just sorry, but I don't care. Because when I'm filled with the Spirit, I want to sing. I just want to I just want to exalt the Lord and I want to join in the chorus that's taking place here in this building as we exalt the Lord in music and song. Music is so important to the people of God. Music is so important to the church. Ralph Martin in his book Worship in the Early Church says the Christian church was born in song. And I think he's right. The church was born in song. Christians are singing People And there's a reason for this. And the reason is this, that the great, marvelous, wonderful, incredible realities of salvation are too great to just be thought about. And they're too great just to be kind of discussed amongst us. And they're too marvelous even to teach and preach. The great, marvelous, weighty truths of God are so great that they have to be sung. And music gives wings to the thoughts and attentions of our heart that are filled with joy as we contemplate what Christ has done for us and in us and through us. And music gives us the ability to give voice to that. Singing is the Christian's way of saying these truths about Christ and the gospel and God and eternity and redemption and heaven and justification and adoption and regeneration and reconciliation and forgiveness are so great that we have to sing about them. We can't just talk about them. We can't just discuss them. We can't just think about them. We have to sing about them. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what you're going to do. You're going to sing And this is the way it's always been. Go to the book of Psalms. Psalms is a worship book. It's a book of words about God and who He is and what He's done put to music. That's what the Psalter is. It means to put to music words and truths about God. That's what the word solo means in Greek. It means to put to music truths about who God is. So if you go to Psalm 4, it says, For the choir director on stringed instruments. Did you know Psalm 4 was meant to be sung? Psalm 5, For the choir director for flute accompaniment. Psalm 6, for the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-string lyre. These truths were meant to be sung. Psalm 7, a shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush. Now, do you know what a shigion is? Me either. So I had to look it up, and it said this. It said, a dithyrambic rhythm. Do you know what that is? I don't either. So, yeah, it could be rapping. I'm not sure what it is. But I had to look up that word too, and it tells me in the dictionary that this kind of psalm is a wild, passionate, exuberant song. So next time you sing Psalm 7, you better sing it with some passion, because that's the way it was meant to be sung. And so what God has done in giving us music is He's given us the opportunity and the privilege of singing to Him and glorifying Him with our voices as we are filled with the Spirit of God who gives voice to our exaltation and glory to God. Music has always been an integral part of the people of God. Just look back in the Old Testament. Look at the Old Testament saints. Do you remember when Moses led the people out of Egypt? And all the ten plagues where Pharaoh finally said, okay, you can go. And they left the land and they traveled through the Red Sea. And God protected them and delivered them from the Egyptians. And the Egyptians pursued them. And the sea came over them and killed them and destroyed them. And on the other side, Moses led two million people in what? A song. 
Can you imagine two million people singing about the great acts of God? It was followed by a woman's chorus led by Moses' sister Miriam. Can you imagine a half million woman's chorus? It must have been beautiful. As they are giving voice to the joy in their hearts over what God had done. You can't help but sing. Remember Deborah and Barak? Judges chapter 5. As God gives them victory over the Canaanites, what do they do? They break out in song. They, they, they just start singing. And, and Deborah and Barak lead the nation of Israel in this tribute to God for their victory in music. Remember David taking the ark to Jerusalem traveling from where it had been to, to the capital city. And do you remember what they were doing? They were singing and dancing with tambourines and harps and lyres and castanets and cymbals. Music has always been part of the people of God's worship to the Lord. In fact, in the temple, the great temple, the Solomonic temple, which was built after David, there were 38,000 people who lived and functioned in this temple, and 4,000 of them were just musicians. One in ten of the temple servants, the people who served within the temple grounds, was a musician. In fact, the whole Levites, if you look at the Levite people who attended the needs of the temple, a lot of them were skillful singers and musicians and instrumentalists and soloists and song leaders. God has given music as a means of serving him with hearts that are filled with joy. That's why in Psalm 33, verse 1, it says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Psalm 96, verses 1 and 2 said, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. That's why Psalm 149, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. What's the point? The point is music gives voice to what's in our heart as the Spirit of God works the truths of the gospel into our heart so that the only response is singing. What was the last thing Jesus did with his disciples before being arrested in the garden? They sang a hymn. What were Paul and Silas doing when they were imprisoned in Philippi? They were singing. Do you know in the future you'll be singing? Do you know the millennium when Christ returns and he establishes his throne upon this earth in the city of Jerusalem and he rules and reigns with all authority from the capital city of Israel, that there will be a new temple? And in that new temple described for us in Ezekiel 40 to 48, there's a description of the, the chamber for the choir, which if you look at the measurements of it, should seat about 3,000 people. So in the millennial kingdom, as we're on the earth with Christ ruling and reigning, there will be a majestic chorus singing loudly from the temple. Why? To give voice to our praise. In heaven, what's taking place right now? They're singing. Revelation 5 verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Heavenly people are singing. Revelation 15 says they sang a song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. You see, when your heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, the only response is singing and music and worship. This is how you know if you're filled with the Spirit. You will be singing. And I want you to see it here in verse 19, because Paul addresses that. And I want you just to notice a few things here. Let's go back to the text. I want you to notice just some very specific things about this here in verse 19. I want you to notice first who you sing to. Verse 19 says, you are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This tells us that when you are singing and your heart is overflowing because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in your heart, you are singing to one another. Literally, to yourselves, to yourselves gathered together. When you sing, the primary audience for our singing is fellow believers. Think about that. 
say, I thought it was about God. It is. We'll get to that in a minute. But Paul wants us to understand here very first that when you're singing, you're singing to each other. That means that music is not for the world. Christian music, the music of the church, the music of the redeemed, the song of the saints is not for the world. We don't go out and sing songs about redemption to the world. They don't get that. We sing that here. We sing that here as we encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds through our music, through our songs. And that tells us something very important about corporate worship. It tells us that what we do on a Sunday morning when the saints are gathered together is super important. You know, we don't put songs together just to have something else to do other than the preaching of the word. Right? We, it's not filler. It's not just filler to kind of fill up an hour and a half so we have something else to do. That's not what it is. When we gather together and the saints come together and our hearts are filled with the Spirit of God and overflowing over the work He's done and we sing together, we're singing to each other. And what that does is that intensifies our emotions for God. It communicates our witness to God. It unites us in corporate life around God. And there's something unique about this corporate community gathered together, singing the song of the redeemed. There's something unique about that. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. We know we've done this the last couple Sundays. I want you to see it again. Colossians 3, verse 16 is the parallel text to this text right here. And I want you to see how Paul describes it there in that verse of what is truly taking place when we are gathered together. Colossians 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying when you gather together and you're filled with the Spirit of God and songs come out of your heart and music comes out of your lips, what you are actually doing to one another is you are teaching and admonishing one another. You think about that? We're not here just making a joyful noise. We are here singing songs about who God is. And in the context of that singing, we are teaching each other. And we are admonishing each other. And we are urging one another to cling to God. And we are urging each other to know God more fully. And we are urging each other to, to live out the realities that we know of who God is. Marvelous. Marvelous reality. This is the joy of the community of believers brought together, we teach and admonish each other about the great and marvelous truths of, of who God is. We're instructing, we're exhorting, we're admonishing, we're encouraging. This is the sign of a spirit-filled life. Secondly, I want you to notice that the means by which we communicate to one another is in verse 19. Go back to Ephesians 5, verse 19. I want you to notice that the means by which we communicate to one another is psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs. These are the ways, these are the means by which we communicate to one another when we're spirit-filled. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that all we do is sing to each other? I mean, is that what it means? You know, like, how was your day? Oh, blessed be the day. Blessed, is that how we do that? Like, do we just start singing songs to one another? You know, how are you handling this trial? Well, you know, when peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Oh, it's well. It's well. Is that, is that what he's talking about? It could be. In fact, I think that'd be for, make for pretty good conversation, wouldn't it? Is that what Paul's getting at here? Is he saying that you have to actually be singing to each other? I don't think so. But I think he is talking about the fact that these truths that we sing about are the means by which we encourage and teach one another. So he's telling us here that these songs that we sing take a multiplicity of different forms. You can sing psalms, which are those songs found in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. Those are the truths that we talked about before put to music. That's the Psalter. And when we sing those songs, we are stimulating one another and teaching one another. It can also take the form of hymns, which are songs of praise to God and to Christ. They're specifically focused on Christ. They're specifically dealing with redemption. Colossians 1 is a hymn of the early church. 
And Philippians chapter 2 about Christ is a hymn of the early church. These were hymns that they sung to one another about who Christ is. So those are hymns. And there's spiritual songs, which we think are just kind of general songs about themes other than direct praise to God. So we sing about certain themes. We sing about whatever, redemption. We, we sing about eternity. We sing about forgiveness. We sing about joy. Those are different concepts or themes that we sing in spiritual songs. And so I don't think Paul's necessarily here trying to make distinctions between all these. It's very hard to, to separate what's a psalm and what's a hymn and what's a spiritual song. But I think what he's showing us is that our singing will be undergirded by sound biblical realities. That's what he's saying. He's saying when you sing to each other, you're going to be singing the rich, marvelous, profound, robust truth of who God is. Let's go read the Psalms. That's what you find. Go read the hymns. What are we singing about? We're singing about the deep, rich, marvelous realities of God, Christ, salvation, redemption, forgiveness, eternity, heaven. Those are the things that we're singing about. And that tells us something about our singing. It better be theological. It better be biblical. And it better be robust. Right? That's why I told you back in our series on worship back this past summer, you can't sing songs like you make me move, Jesus. You know, you make me move, you make me breathe. Every breath I take in you, you are my way. Na, 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 na. You just can't, you can't sing that kind of stuff because your heart is so full of the immense, marvelous, rich truths about God. You've got to go deeper than that. You've got to sing psalms and you've got to sing hymns and you've got to sing the rich spiritual songs concerning Christ and redemption. And when you sing, that's what you want to sing about. So we sing to each other. The content of our singing or our speaking is the rich and marvelous truths about God and his work of salvation. Thirdly, I want you to notice it's from the heart. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That word making melody is the word solo in the Greek where we get our Greek, our English term psalms. You're, you're literally making melody. You're psalming out what? Your heart. You're singing and making melody with your heart. And so this is, this is the kind of joy that just permeates from your heart and bubbles up from your heart. This isn't manufactured. This isn't contrived. This isn't forced. You can't just get the lighting right and the settings right and the, 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 the lights right and everything perfect. You can't manipulate this kind of worship and this kind of singing. This is, this is singing that emanates from a heart that is filled with the Spirit of God. And it's overflowing in music. Fourthly, I want you to notice that it's to God. The end of verse 19 says that you're singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. This is is God-centered singing. This is not man-centered singing. This is God-centered singing. This is theocentric singing, not anthropocentric singing. This is singing that springs from a heart that just wants to exalt God for his work of redemption. And when the Spirit of God is working in your heart, the only thing it can do is lift praise and adoration to God. It's to each other horizontally, but it's to God vertically. So friends, this this is how you know when you're spirit-filled. This is how you know when the the Spirit of God is controlling your life. You don't need to go to happy hour to be happy, do you? You can be happy, joyful, filled with gratitude and thanks to the Lord by the Spirit of God working in your heart. So, are you joyful? Are you singing? Does music just spill out of your heart? Do you love to gather together with the saints to sing? It's one of the manifestations of the Spirit of God working in your heart. There's a second one here in verse 20. Not only is your heart going to be joyful, but secondly, your attitude is going to be grateful. When you're spirit-filled, 
you're going to be a thankful person. You're going to be content. You're not going to be anxious. You're not going to be wishing for something that you don't have. You're not going to be longing for something you once had. You're not going to be thinking that you you deserve more. You're, You're going to be content. You're going to be thankful. You're going to be grateful. You are going to be a thankful believer. And that's what Paul says in verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Listen, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, what's going to emanate from your heart is first singing and music and secondly, gratitude. You'll be thankful. I want you to notice a few things about this verse as well. I want you to notice first in verse 20 that it's continual thanks. Do you see that? Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are always giving thanks. You are always thankful. You are always filled with gratitude. This is the mark of a spirit-filled Christian. They are always thankful. They're, they're always just grateful. They're always filled with thankfulness to the Lord for what He's done in their life. They're not wishing for something they, they don't have. They're, they're not quietly ungrateful and mad at God because he hasn't given them what... No, they're always thankful. It's God's will for your life. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 And everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will for you is to be a thankful person. And when you're filled with the Spirit of God, He's going to produce in you that spirit of gratitude and that spirit of thankfulness. Just read Colossians chapter 3. Sometime when you have time, go read Colossians chapter 3 and see how many times the command to be thankful is there. Verse 15, and be thankful. Verse 16, singing with thankfulness in your heart. Verse 17, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him. Chapter 4 of Colossians. Verse 2, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. It's God's will for us to be thankful Christians. And when the Spirit of God is controlling you, it's going to come out. You can't, you can't force this. You can't manufacture this. You can't work this way. You can't, you can't do anything to make yourself thankful. No, this is a ministry of the Spirit of God who when you're walking with Him, He is going to be producing within you a spirit of thankfulness and gratitude. And so it's always giving thanks. It's continual. Is that you? Are you continually thankful? You say, Todd, you don't know my life. You have no idea what I'm going through. You don't know the trials. You don't know the difficulties. You don't know what what hardships we're in right now. No, that's not the issue. The issue is, when you're walking in the Spirit, you will be thankful despite those. This is not possible in your own strength, but it will become a response all the time when you're living the Spirit-filled life. I want you to notice, secondly, that this is not only continual, it's comprehensive. Look in verse 20. You will always be giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only is it continuous always, it's going to be in all circumstances. It's comprehensive. There's there's nothing for which you are not going to be able to be thankful in. You'll always be giving thanks for all things, which means you're going to be able to see in your circumstances the hand of God working in your life. You're going to do what James 1 says. You're going to consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So even in those times of life which are difficult and hard and full of trials, you're going to be able to say, but I know that the hand of God is working in this. And so I may not be thankful for, but I'm going to be thankful in these circumstances. You're going to humbly and gratefully submit to God's sovereignty. You're going to know that He works in everything for your good and for His glory. And so in the midst of all of that stuff, whatever's going on in your life, no matter what trials, financial, physical, relational, you're going to be able to be a thankful, grateful person. Not because you can force yourself to be that way, but because the Spirit of God is working in your heart to produce that kind of gratitude. Thirdly, I want you to notice in this verse... That not only is it 
continual, and not only is it comprehensive, it's also Christ-centered. You see that? In verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. You're, you're going to be continually thankful, and you're going to be comprehensively thankful, and you're going to be thankful because you realize that Christ is the one who's giving you these blessings despite the trials. You're going to give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. You see it? You're going to be able to say, yeah, these trials are, are hard, they're difficult. But I have Christ. I have Christ. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. I still have Christ. Hold your finger here. Go to the book of Colossians. We're going there a lot because it is the parallel book to Ephesians. And I want you, I want you to see how in Colossians chapter 1... Paul links gratitude with Christ. And I want you to see very clearly how he does this. I want you to see that he links the command to be joyful with the work of Christ in your heart. And I want you to see that because I believe it's crucial to the spirit-filled life. Look in verse 11. He says, I'm praying for you to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Here it is joyously giving thanks to the Father. Paul says, I want you to be thankful, Colossians. I want you to be grateful, Colossians. I want you to be filled with joy such that you're giving thanks to the Father. And then I want you to see how he locates the the source of this thankfulness in Christ himself. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has qualified you. He has made you fit to receive these blessings. To to be one who can share in the inheritance of the saints in life. In Christ, He has made you ready and able to receive all of the inheritance which is Christ. That's a reason to be thankful, isn't it? What else has he done? Verse 13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness. You you understand that? You have been delivered from the domain of darkness. You've been rescued. Pulled out of Satan's grip. Pulled out of the work of, of hell. Pulled out of what you deserved and I deserve. You've been delivered from that. Rescued. I told you a couple summers ago I read a book called Ghost Soldiers. Amazing book about how some 500 allied POWs were being held at a camp in the Philippines during World War II. Many of them the survivors of the Bataan Death March. And 121 U.S. Army Rangers parachuted into the Philippines and slashed their way through 30 miles of jungle to liberate 513 emaciated, tortured allied POWs. And they did. They took down the guards. They opened the doors and set free these prisoners of war. They were delivered, rescued. You're in Christ. And you've been rescued from far more than a prisoner of war camp. You've been rescued from the clutches of hell. Delivered. And you can't be thankful. He has qualified you, Christ has, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And he's delivered you from the domain of darkness. And look at verse 13, Colossians 1. Not only that, he's transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. You've been taken from darkness into light, from hell into heaven. You've been brought from a place of destruction and death in eternal hell to a place where you are now in Christ. You are into the kingdom of his beloved son and you will live with him one day for all eternity here on the earth as he's ruling and reigning and he establishes the new heavens and the new earth that's a reason to be thankful 
You've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Why? In verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be meditating on and filling your mind with these marvelous truths of the doctrine of deliverance, saved, rescued, given inheritance. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5. When, when you're truly walking in the Spirit, you will, verse 20, always be giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, because you're going to sense that Christ is the means for all of these blessings. Christ is the means and the basis for your gratitude and your thanksgiving. Christ is the means by which all these blessings come to you. And so the Spirit of God is going to work that in your heart to bring that to conviction. And no matter what is going on in your life, you're going to be able to say, I'm thankful. You can't do that on your own. You, you can't force yourself to do that. But the Spirit of God can do that in you. I'm so grateful for my wife, who probably tells me three times a week, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for my kids. I'm thankful for our house. I'm thankful for my husband. I kind of like that part. <laughs> I'm thankful for our church. I'm thankful for what God's doing in our family and our kids. I'm just so thankful. That's the Spirit of God working in her to produce a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness. Listen, I believe that gratitude and thankfulness is one of the most vivid demonstrations of a spirit-filled life. Because you can't be grumpy and complaining and discontent when the Spirit of God is working in your heart. And if you're filled with complaining and grumbling and discontentment and anxiety, that's a good indication that the Spirit of God does not have full control of your life. Because what the Spirit of God does when you're thankful, He pushes out discontentment and He pushes out ingratitude and He pushes out discontentment. A Spirit-filled life rules out a spirit of ingratitude. Listen to William Hendrickson. He says this. He says, The expression of gratitude is therefore a most blessed response to favors undeserved. While it lasts, worries tend to disappear. Complaints vanish. Courage to face the future is increased. Virtuous resolutions are formed. Peace is experienced. And God is glorified. Where? When there's gratitude present in your life. How do you get there? Not yourself. Face it, none of us are naturally thankful people, are we? We like to complain. We, we like to be critical. We, we like to, to point out all the bad things. We like to be negative. That's our flesh. Our flesh makes us discontent. Our flesh makes us grumble. But when the Spirit of God is controlling you, He pushes out all of that discontentment and all of that ingratitude. And makes you a thankful person. Are you thankful? Are you thankful? Are you truly grateful for where you are in your life? That's what the Spirit of God does. He makes your heart joyful, He makes your attitude grateful. Third, your relationships are harmonious. Your relationships are going to be harmonious. Look at verse 21. And being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You want to know if you're spirit-filled? Look at your joy. Look at your gratitude. And look at your relationships. If there's a wreckage of relationships behind you, chances are you're not filled with the Spirit of God. Because a wreckage of relationships, factions, disputes, fights, conflict, that is the mark of the flesh. Just read Galatians 5. When you're walking in the flesh, you are marked by factions and envying and strife. That's the mark of the flesh. But when you're filled with the Spirit, 
You're going to be submitting to one another. You're going to be deferring to one another. You're going to be preferring one another. You're going to, in humility, consider others better than yourself. And so if behind you there's a string of healthy relationships, not always perfect, but healthy, vibrant, unified, it's a good sign you're a man or a woman who's walking in the Spirit of God. Mutual submission is a result of the Spirit of God filling your heart. You understand that? Mutual submission to one another is a result of the Spirit's filling your life. He will lead you to humility. He will give you the desire to seek the welfare of others before your own. And that's what the Spirit of God's going to do. He's going to work within you a spirit of humility and kindness and deferring to one another so that your relationships are going to be healthy and strong and harmonious. Do you know I submit to my wife? Do you know that? And husbands, you better submit to your wife as well. You say, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to be the spiritual leader of your family? I'm not talking about functional submission. There's a difference between those. Yes, Julie is my helper. I'm the spiritual leader of our home. She's my helper. I'm not talking about functional submission. I'm talking about a spirit and an attitude of submission which forces me and encourages me and exhorts me to submit to my wife because I love her and I care for her and I want to know her thoughts and her opinions. That's a difference in functional roles. We're not talking that. Do you submit to one another? Do you defer to one another? There's a whole lot we could say about this. And we're going to. The next few months. Because verse 21 is an introduction to the end of chapter 5 and the rest of chapter 6. So if you want to know what mutually submissive relationships look like, You better come back for the rest of the story. Father God, we want to be spirit-filled believers. And Father, we want these manifestations of the Spirit of God working in our lives. God, let us not be filled by the deeds of the flesh. Let us not be marked by the works of the flesh. Instead, Father, let us be those who are marked by these consequences of the Spirit-filled life. Joy, happiness, gratitude, thankfulness, singing, making melody in our hearts, and healthy relationships. Lord, may you work this in us to your honor and to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.